WBME. Hello from elsewhere, I'm Casey. And I'm Valerie. And welcome to the podcast where we explore characters, themes, and symbolism in pop culture. This episode comes to you straight from an exploding super collider. Because today we're discussing the making of Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. What is up, Danger? <laughs> I love that song. I'm so excited for this episode. You have no idea. We've toyed with the idea of doing uh, a few making of episodes here and there. And so this is our first foray into that a little bit. Um, we've had episodes where we talk a little more history stuff and behind the scenes a little bit. But this is our, I don't know, our, our first really jump into that. So I love behind the scenes. So this is this is everything to me. And I can't I can't wait. Sorry, I'm talking a lot. You're ready to jump in. <laughs> Go for it. No, you're fine. You're very cute and excited. Um, I was just thinking that it's, other than the two episodes where we did commentary on Willow and Princess Diaries, because I think watching the movie through lends itself to pointing out trivia or how they made things right, or yeah. that kind of creation. But And I am curious how well we'll do at presenting all the behind the scenes stuff, because so much of it is visual especially with this one especially very with this visual movie yeah so go watch it and then come listen so it's all like fresh in your mind or listen and then go watch it right away because you'll have new things to notice so either way it'll be fun before we explore the spider-verse though we have an all-important question this one comes from uh well shira and smap both asked similar questions so they get they get class credit for this one um <laughs> which I think Shira and Smap have been on a roll. They've had a lot of a lot of ones that we've picked. So well done. Their question is essentially, what is your par- what is your parallel universe? What is yourself like? What are you like? What <laughs> I can't talk. Casey, what are you like? <laughs> what are you like in your parallel universe? What is your par- parallel universe self like? I'm assuming my parallel parallel universe See, self. It's hard to say. Is not like me at all well probably a little i don't know that's the, that's the question i mean how alike would you actually be in one universe there might be someone that's just barely different and in another there might be one that's vastly different exactly because if you're looking at into the spider verse as your uh what would you call it? as your your guide as your guide as your example they're all incredibly different which is part of the fun true so alternate universe valerie is something super showy I don't feel like I'm a showy person. Okay. Yeah. So maybe they're like a performer or mm-hmm. like artist or I also have this feeling that I would not like anybody who's supposed to be me in an alternate universe. Okay. Kind of like how you tend to dislike people that are too much like yourself when you meet them in real life. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's my theory. I don't know. Maybe we'd get along. Maybe we'd be best buds. But I think it's the American in me where you just feel like you have to be an individual and mm. there's nobody like you. Yeah. We are, we are trained to believe that from the time that we are young. <laughs> so do more Americans balk at the idea of the multiverse than other countries? That's a, <laughs> that's a very good question. <laughs> and I would love to know the answer. Yeah, I don't know. If it bugs other people as much. But I don't like the idea that there's a million other versions of me out there because I just like me as I am. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I don't know. My so alternate... yeah, I, I guess I don't have anything specific. That's just okay. a very showy version of myself. I think alternate Casey is, um, he's confident 
and not afraid of stuff. That's one. Two, he's probably like an astronaut. I, I could see an alternate universe Casey that's an astronaut. It just makes sense to my brain. Yes, absolutely. Um, maybe a writer as well, like a space poet. Yes. Yep. And uh, and yeah, that's that's <laughs> all I got. That's my alternate Casey. I'm loving this alternate Casey with the space poet. Mm-hmm. It's the line from Contact where they say uh, they should have sent a poet when she goes through the... Oh, that's the, right, because they have all yeah. the mathematics instead. Yes. It's one of my favorite movie lines. I can't remember if that's in the book. I don't know. Anyway, anywho, we should dive into the Spider-Verse. Because there's a lot Bef- to talk about. Before we get to the movie itself, I wanted to give some background on Miles Morales as a character. Is that cool? Absolutely. So the story of Miles Morales begins with Barack Obama and Donald Glover. As it should. <laughs> in, in 2008, with Barack Obama set to become the first black and biracial president of the United States, Marvel Comics um, then editor-in-chief Axel Alonso, he started toying with the idea of having a non-white Spider-Man in the Ultimate Universe, which is a parallel universe to the main Marvel Comics universe. Uh, this didn't come to fruition in 2008, but the seeds were starting to be planted that, hey, maybe, maybe Spider-Man doesn't have to be white. In... 2010, so two years later, Sony was starting to look at actors for their rebooted Amazing Spider-Man film. And io9.com posted an article arguing that Spider-Man was not defined by his whiteness, and anyone of any demographic could be behind the mask, uh, that that Sony should be looking outside the usual mold for Peter Parker. I have a great quote. Can I put it in right there? Yeah. Okay, so I was reading this article on Vulture.com, and she was talking about the uh, author Walter Mosley, who is, he's black, and he says... He makes the point that uh, even before Miles Morales came on the scene, that like Spider-Man was the first black superhero. Oh. If you just think about how he's presented. As in like culturally he's presented as black or yeah, something? Yeah, so here's his quote from Walter okay. Mosley. It says, the first black superhero is Spider-Man. He lives in a one-parent house. It's not even a parent. It's an aunt. He has all of this power, but every time he uses it, it turns against him. People are afraid of him. The police are after him. The only way he can get a job is by taking pictures of himself that are used against him in public. J. Jonah Jameson, who's the uh, newspaper chief, says to him, Go out and take a picture that shows him with his hand in the cookie jar, that shows him stealing and being a villain. That's a black hero right there. Of course, he's actually a white guy, but black people reading Spider-Man are like, yeah, I get that. I identify with this character here. Wow, that's blowing my mind. Yeah. That's really interesting. I was fascinated by that uh, point that he makes. Yeah. So when they sit down, they start thinking about, because um, I was reading about, so Bendis, uh, what's his name? Brian Michael Bendis? Yeah. Who wrote the original, or who created the Miles Morales character? Yeah, he and, and Sarah Pacelli, yeah. Yes, she was the artist. Artist. Mm-hmm. Um, so when they kind of like sat down at a, a Marvel meeting and this idea was kind of thrown out there, like, yeah why couldn't Spider-Man be a person of color? And it's like, well, Walter Mosley has been saying that yeah, for a while. <laughs> for a while. Yeah, well, and so so io9.com came out with this article that was, they were saying, like, why why does Spider-Man have to be white? Um, and, and Sony, as they're looking to cast this new Spider-Man role, they should be looking outside the usual mold for, for Peter Parker. And at the time, a uh, black actor, Donald Glover, he was, he was currently on NBC's community, and he retweeted the article. And it kind of blew up. It went viral. And um, and so did this campaign 
with Glover lobbying to be given a, uh, a chance to audition for the movie role of Peter Parker with the hashtag Donald for Spider-Man. Um, nothing really came of the campaign, unfortunately, other than just a lot of people were in support of it. Andrew Garfield was eventually cast in the in that role. But in the season two premiere of Community, Donald Glover's character Troy is introduced by waking up in Spider-Man pajamas as a fun nod to the campaign. And even better, Into the Spider-Verse, the movie, Yeah, they have, it's like a quick little clip on Uncle Aaron's TV in his apartment. It has community playing, and it's the scene of Donald Glover <laughs> dressed yeah. in his Spider-Man pajamas. <laughs> yeah, well, Donald Glover has sort of unwittingly enmeshed himself into the mythology of Spider-Man with this because mm-hmm. because of the campaign and because of the pajamas, and, and that scene was, like you said, put into Spider-Verse, but then Donald Glover also plays Uncle Aaron. He plays Aaron Davis in Spider-Man Homecoming, um, and then he also voiced Miles Morales in the Ultimate Spider-Man animated series as well. So there's this crazy chain and, and circular stuff going on, um, almost a multiverse itself of Donald Glover's portrayal of various characters in, um, in the Spider-Man universe. But back to that, when that first scene from season two of Community was shown, uh, Brian Michael Bendis saw that scene. He saw the episode and he said, uh, Glover, quote, looked fantastic. I saw him in the costume and thought, I would like to read that book. So I was glad I was writing that book, end quote. You know, referring to how in the, the ultimate universe within that next year after that episode of Community aired, Peter Parker would die in the comics and another Spider-Man would take on the mantle. In this case, Spidey would become a, a biracial character. The, the character of Spider-Man would be biracial. Bendis also said, quote, it's certainly long overdue, even though there's some amazing African-American and minority characters bouncing around in all the superhero universes, it's still crazy lopsided, end quote. And Bendis, who is, he is white, um, and it, it should be noted how many um, white people have still been behind the scenes in creation of Miles Morales. I think that's just worth noting. But he was considering representation of black children at the time, and he's also the adoptive father of two black girls. And he said, wouldn't it be nice for them to have a character or a hero that speaks to them as much as Peter Parker has spoken to so many children? There's nothing wrong with that, and I think we need more of it, end quote. So Miles Morales, he first appears in Ultimate Comics Fallout Number 4, created by um, Bendis and artist Sarah Pacelli, as mentioned. His background was not really fully explored in that initial comic. It was later in Ultimate Comics Spider-Man, uh, which, which I've read, actually. It was a year a few years ago, um, long before the movie, but it's really good. But that's kind of a, the background to the Miles Morales character. In that same Vulture article uh, with the Walter Mosley quote, which will be in the show notes, the author of the article points out several instances in the comics where they feel like, uh, well, not just them, but like Spider-Man fans, especially Spider-Man fans of color, uh, point out like flaws where... Yeah, he doesn't live up. It really like it's clear that the white creator uh, of yeah. this, you know, biracial Spider-Man, like doesn't really get it as yeah. far as, you know, he himself is not a person of color, and so he will not like fully understand. And so there's a few places where they point out that it the comics fall short. But I mean, I read dozens of articles on representation in Spider-Man, and I thought it was fascinating that like that nobody had anything negative to say about. The Into the Spider-Verse movie as far as yeah. its representation goes. So while the comic was a great start, uh, a lot of people were very excited that they felt like it got even better with the movie's version 
movie version of Miles Morales. For sure. I think it, it helps that, um, well, you have Shamik Moore, who is cast as as Miles Morales in the movie and is going to bring his own, um, just who he is, his own identity, his own uniqueness to the role. And so that helps. And then also um, one of the directors, Pete Ramsey, is black as well. So I think, like you said, it's, it was getting better and it, it got better. But maybe that's a good point to a good place to jump into the movie. Are you ready? I'm ready. So the movie has three directors, Bob Persichetti and Pete Ramsey, as mentioned, and Rodney Rothman. I was curious to know on these films that have multiple directors, sort of how they balance who does what, yes. like what, what their role is. And I'm sure there's overlap. overlap. There's but you would have be. to have specific things that you're in charge of. Otherwise, you'd just be stepping on each other's toes all the time. Yeah. As far as I could tell, it seemed like Persichetti was more in, in the role of directing the characters and then... Ramsey did a lot of um, directing a lot of the action and he's also an artist himself and so I think he had a lot of input into the direction of the artistic style too um, as well as all the the concept artists who are amazing Um, and then Rodney Rothman was helping with the the scripting aspect too because he was one of the writers with Phil Lord because Phil Lord and Chris Miller were the producers of this and then Phil Lord also helped with the writing which was the first time that Phil Lord didn't write with Chris Miller they're usually hand in hand as they do it, which is interesting. But Chris Miller was still there as as one of the producers. And they even early on when they were asked to produce this movie, they said they would only do it if it would be a story about Miles Morales. So they really pushed Sony to to make this a Miles Morales movie. Yes, because Sony said no at first. And then they came back a couple weeks later and were like, okay. We actually really like this idea. <laughs> I wonder who who was the push. Who's the naysayer? Who's who's the naysayer? Yeah. Who's the one who's like, no, 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 we're gonna do this. Yeah, I don't know. I'd be curious. I want to be in that room. Yes. But yeah, I don't know. I'm so glad they did because it's. I can't think of this movie in any other way. And this movie without Miles Morales wouldn't be anywhere close to the same movie. I agree. Without Miles Morales, it's the same origin story that we've gotten 100 times. Yeah. Which I was worried when we first, when I first saw the trailers, I was like, oh, another Spider-Man origin story. Um, But I think because he's just such a different Spider-Man. Yeah. I mean, he's not Peter Parker. He's Miles Morales. Like he's such a different reinvention of Spider-Man that I think that makes it really unique. And also I was worried when I first saw the trailer that it would like hurt my eyeballs to watch this movie because the trailer was just so colorful and like flashing lights. And I was like, I don't know if I can watch that. It's going to like give me like hurt my eyes, right. but it's incredibly beautiful. I worried about that too, as someone who's prone to migraines if it would induce a migraine but it no i i love this movie so much it could not be more creatively beautifully animated than it is and i can see because there are people that they can't watch it visually physically they can't watch it and i understand that but i could definitely see that because that was a concern of mine in terms of the animation this movie had a huge amount of people involved yes let's talk about the animation for a minute i have some things okay. I want to talk about there are 177 animators on this movie which is much more than a typical animated film and was record-breaking for sony and probably other studios as well 800 people worked on the movie overall and it took four years which four years is what's interesting because that's not a long time for an animated movie that's pretty typical for the industry but in terms of the animation choices they made and how they pushed themselves 
four years is an insane amount of time for them to finish this movie. Right, because they were saying in the commentary that we watched that it usually takes a team of animators a week to create four seconds of animation, which even that, it blows my mind, like a whole week to do four seconds of a movie. Uh, That just shows you how detailed of a process it is. But in Into the Spider-Verse, it took a month to create four seconds of animation. Yeah, one second a week. Yeah. That's just crazy. And it was in part because the animators created the computer-generated animation, and then they came in and did, like, hand-drawn touches on top of that. Yeah. So it's all just incredibly unique and beautiful and unlike any other animated film. They were especially doing that on the faces, if you notice the faces. There's a lot of hand-drawn strokes, like the creases and the wrinkles, the brow furrows, the cheekbones and chin lines, or dimples and smile lines, to give it, uh, like, a comic book crisp clean look while also giving it an imperfect quality because that was really important to them it's not as robotic as something made completely three-dimensionally but it's insane because they didn't have to do that no the things that it could they have been did, beautiful without it they didn't have to do it but everything they did made it all the much better so in in terms of the original impetus of course for this was let's make this look like a comic book justin k thompson who's the production designer he said he quote wanted to give the film an even stronger visual identity by leaning into the comic book language. I learned how to draw by emulating the artists who created the comic books I grew up with. I loved the line work, the color, the texture, the screen printing, everything, end quote. And in, in this movie, he wanted to create something that showed the, the hand of the artist, which is why they went on the faces and other parts of the film to hand draw things. And then sort of related, Danny Dimian, the visual effects supervisor, supervisor he described it, uh, quote, what's interesting about art is all the imperfections that go hand in hand with a human creating things. We had to find a way to break things, end quote. So they are purposefully making it look human by adding imperfections, much like Miles Morales walking around with his shoe untied. That's what this movie is, is a movie with its shoe untied. And I love that so much. (laughs) Just this little detail that adds so much more realism to it. Yeah. I like in the movie that they, I don't know if I'd caught it when I, first watched it but when the direct in the director's commentary they pointed out that it's because like you said they they're going for a very comic book look but it doesn't look like a comic book until after miles morales gets bit by the spider which is just a fantastic idea like they're so smart because i mean if you had made the whole thing comic book i would have never questioned it but how much more clever that it's not until he becomes Spider-Man that the whole movie now has uh, word bubbles and comic panels and, and uh, oh, Casey, what do they call the thing where there's the dots? Okay, so there's, there's Bende dots or halftone, and then there's the Kirby dots. So mm. I wanted to get into this because it's fun. It's fun and technical and, and geeky. Let's hear it. So there's... Uh, the... I don't know the difference between the two. So you know if you look at a comic book or like an old piece of pop art you can see if you look closely you can see lots of teeny little dots on the faces or pretty much all over on on the art you can see these little dots right the comic book version of pointillism yes yeah so if they're i think it has more to do with the coloring than the inking process but are we just making a joke yeah i was just making a joke (laughs) (laughs) uh the because they don't use the it's more like shading yeah. Versus, yeah, they don't create the whole image out of dots. Right. So, but it, yes. But it is kind of like pixelation. Like if you look really close, um, there'd be lots of dots that are closer together if it's darker and where it gets lighter, the, the dots are more spread out. 
and that's half tone. And then there's bende dots, which are all the same, um, the same gradient are the bende dots. But that, those are just like comic booky looking dots. And the movie Spider-Verse has that in droves. Um, they also have Kirby dots, which is a reference to Jack Kirby, the legendary comic book artist. Anytime there's cosmic energy in his comic books, he would just use these like bubbly looking, often black or other colors, but um, often black, like energy looking dots. And they use that for the collider. You see a lot of that in the collider yeah, scenes. Yes. Of various colors. But then even the they'll use cross hatching for shading. So just lines on the faces and stuff to create the shadow look, which is a comic book thing. And then there's, of course, the onomatopoeia, um, the word bubbles and, and narr- narration um, boxes. The, yes. there's, there's comic book panels all the over the, the place. The verbalized sound effects. Pow, yeah. kablam. What's crazy was the background that they did. So in a normal animated movie to create, the, they would just fade out the background so you could focus in the foreground, right? They didn't use any of that in this. What they did was they, which is crazy when you watch it because you're like, what? That doesn't make any sense. But they, um, instead of just putting things out of focus, they would use offset, offset printing. So like if you look at an old comic book, you would notice how there's the black lines that are the ink and sometimes the color would be just offset a teeny bit because it's imperfect in a comic book, right? So some of the color would bleed outside the lines a little bit. And so the more something was in the background, they would bleed the color outside of those edges more to look like it's blurry or out of focus, but they're not actually blurring it, which is insane. It's the coolest effect. Yeah. And so much more work that they didn't have to do. Yeah. But that makes the movie amazing. But then even more so, the farther something got in the background, the more they would abstract the art. Um, And I've posted a bunch of videos that can show this visually um, in the show notes. But basically, instead of drawing little, instead of animating cars and just throwing them in the background, which would um, a lot of animated movies might do, they would just make color blobs to put in the background. The same way if you were making a painting, you wouldn't be able to draw all the details of the car. You would just make blobs far in the background in the city of the cars or the people walking around the streets. Yes, a, a vague shape of a yeah, car that's exactly. just a color. Yeah, I love the fact that every animator wanted a chance to animate Stan Lee. So yeah. he's on, they say he's pretty much on every train that goes by. Like yeah. if you were to freeze, you know, pause your movie. It's like there's Stan Lee in every window or he's in a ton of the crowds. Um, I thought that was really so fun. Great. Especially since this was Stan Lee's last film. Yeah. And I, it came out after his death, but it was the last one that he did. Uh, I mean, he did the voice for, obviously, because it's animation. I like that they pointed out in the commentary that he, everyone else that was like a cameo or a voice or anything, they all had to come into studio. But for Stan Lee, they, they took the mic and equipment <laughs> to him to, him, to yeah. record his <laughs> few lines there. <laughs> I mean, well-deserved. One other thing that makes it, that gives it a comic booky look, too, is the... They would use pop frames, they would call them. You kind of notice them as you're watching the movie where a frame or two or sometimes a few frames will be animated differently to look even more comic booky because it's it was all hand-drawn. Those frames were hand-drawn two-dimensionally. Uh, the, the, my favorite one is when Miles is running from the prowler and he jumps in front of the train just in time. And there's that quick flash of a comic book pop frame and it's all hand-drawn which is just awesome. I love it. It's fantastic. Or same when the collider first explodes and Kingpin falls backward with with the lab, with the scientists as well, getting blasted backward. 
So there's a few frames in there because it's animated, but it's all hand-drawn. Yeah, that's a another great point of how they just put so much work into the animation. Another example of that is that they apparently drew 70 different versions of invisible miles before landing on the right one. Mm. Like, how invisible should he be? What does... Because you still need to be able to, like, see him move in the frames. And so you have to decide, will it be an outline? Will it be a blur of the colors around him? Like, he looks camouflaged almost. And so the idea that it took 70 different versions to come up with the perfect invisible miles is just shows how dedicated they were to getting everything just right. Yeah. Another thing they did that they didn't have to do, but they chose to do it, was... In a typical animated movie, they would just add motion blur to make something appear like it's moving quickly. But they didn't use motion blur in this. They used old cartoony techniques like uh, they would call them like the squash and stretch technique. For example, if someone's running and their arms are moving, instead of just motion blurring their arms, if you freeze frame it, you can actually see that they have multiple arms at, at once. And that gives it the old school cartoony look of movement. Um, they did that a lot with the characters, especially with Miles. Yes, Miles is apparently never still in any shot of the entire movie. Like, he is always in some kind of motion movement, yeah. which is just fitting for his kind of, I don't know what you'd call it, his uh, angsty character. Like, I mean, angsty yeah. is not the right word, but like he is perpetually in motion. He's just... Well, and they said they wanted him, as they were looking at different concepts for Miles, they wanted him to have a young deer quality to him that was kind of how they described it he's kind of like a young deer so he's kind of uh, lanky in terms of just the physical look but in even in the movement of him he moves a bit like that he's a bit skittish or um he just has a lot of energy to him you can see that the the big eyes the the way that yeah he's his movements are imperfect mm -hmm. a little fumbly sometimes yeah so most movies are shot or created in 24 frames per second. That's just the industry standard. A lot of the characters in Into the Spider-Verse are 12 frames per second, which gives it a kind of choppier look. But the reason was their whole thing was you should be able to pause this movie and it should be a painting. It should be a comic book frame. And so um, it gives it a more comic booky, but a little bit choppy, a little more illustrated look to it rather than uh, something smooth. And it does make it look a little bit imperfect. But one thing that I loved about that was in the scene with the forest uh, where they're swinging through the forest. At that point, Peter B. Parker is 24 frames per second and Miles is 12 frames per second as he's moving. But you know how they start to sync up and swing together? They start animating miles 24 frames per second at that point as they are syncing up oh so that's it's so cool it's not just a character <laughs> thing it's like an animation thing which is amazing i love I didn't it so realize much. that yeah. but you definitely get the idea that oh they're now in mo they've hit a groove yeah and you your mind doesn't know why mm -hmm. like your you your eyes see it and you can feel the yeah. movement but you don't realize that yeah it's a animation technique it's yeah fantastic yeah they call it animating on twos because it's every two frames miles is animated and peter b parker is animated on ones which is the standard meaning every frame there's some sort of movement when they were talking about that same forest scene and the animators wanted to make the trees move they're like well the leaves the leaves should be moving in the wind right and they're like no because they wouldn't be in a comic book. They would just be a still. It'd be like a backdrop, a painting. The focus would be on the, the characters The characters more. moving. Mm -hmm. I love that the 
spider people are all animated differently as well because they all come from their own comic books that have their own unique style. Spider-Man Noir, the yes, the bende so dots cool. and halftone is like dialed up and it's all black and white. There's even a almost a television black and white refresh rate looking feel to him too. If you look, it's kind of, there's a fuzziness to Spider-Man Noir. And then like, like Penny Parker, she's clearly influenced by anime. Yes. What's the, they said it's the one with the moon. What's her name? Sailor Moon. Sailor Moon. That yeah. She was influenced by Sailor Moon. And then Spider-Ham is is very much a Warner Brothers Looney Tunes. Animaniacs yeah. style, mm-hmm. yes. I love it because it still works, even though it shouldn't work. And that's the thing with this movie. It shouldn't work, but... <laughs> Once you get all these really unique spider people together, and you're like, really? Spider-Ham? Like, that one just seems <laughs> so out there. <laughs> but it works really well. The commentary for this movie is great if you have a way of watching with commentary which is my favorite thing to do (laughs) but um we learned a few other cool things like brian tyree henry who is he plays jefferson davis miles's dad and shimik moore who plays miles they they recorded the scene of them in the police car actually sitting in a room oriented like they're in a car so like with chairs and and shimik sitting behind jeff uh behind um brian and they said that even brian tyree henry even was getting a little bit annoyed with Shamik in the same way that Jefferson Davis is getting annoyed with Miles, which is fantastic. They also do time lapse in animation in this movie, which is insane because to do time lapse in animation, you basically have to animate the whole thing and then time lapse it. You can't just shortcut that. Crazy. <laughs> Definitely mind blowing. Going back to uh, Shamik Moore's performance of Miles, the animators watched him do the lines and they gave Miles a lot of the emotions and body language cues um, that were that were Moore's, like so a lot of his personality is really really influenced how Miles was animated, which is very cool. Well, they seem to do that a lot with a lot of the characters uh, with their silences. They said that they kind of just let the actors act, and more than a typical animated movie, animated around their performance. Also, did you know why Miles doesn't have his father's name, his father's last name? Tell us. Because I found this out in an article. Uh, According to Bendis, the writer of the original Miles Morales comics. um, So apparently his dad was an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, Yeah, Jefferson Davis. Jefferson Davis, yes. I thought you meant Bendis' dad. No. S.H.I.E.L.D. (laughs) (laughs) S.H.I.E.L.D. real? Jefferson Davis, which you're like, you know, because then you've got Miles Morales, who is his son. Um, And he wanted to protect his son. Oh, that makes sense. So that's why he goes by... Morales, his mom's name instead. Although apparently that was one of the problems in the comics is that Jefferson Davis was a criminal, post-criminal, had a criminal Mm. history, something like that. And they were saying that it was um, stereotyping to have like black men, because you know, his uncle Aaron is the prowler. Yeah. So then to make his dad a previous criminal as well is very stereotyping. And so that was a, one of the flaws pointed out in the comics. Yeah. So, but you get great um, Jonathan Davis in the, in the movie at home with Miles. Yeah. Great dad. Like you said, in the cop car, he's like making him say, I love you. Yeah. Well, and they mentioned this. He's very involved and, and just, yeah. a, you can tell he's a fantastic father. Well, I think they mentioned it in the commentary where they're talking about how exciting it is to have a 
superhero who who's both of his parents are still alive because most not just superhero characters but a lot of characters in general are orphans or only have one parent with them and so that's exciting what were we watching just yesterday with the kids somebody died and our oldest was like why do they always kill one of the parents we were watching superman oh that's right (laughs) and uh and Jonathan Kent dies. and That's right, because it was just with our, our oldest son. He was watching the beginning with us before he went to bed. That's right. And he was like, why do they always kill off one of the yeah. parents? And I was like, I don't know. That's usually the, the push for yeah. them to become <laughs> a superhero in some way. But we love that Miles comes from a two-parent home, which is very unique. Well, and it's... And it's not that his parents aren't influencing him, but it's just not that he needs their death to influence him, right? Like his dad doesn't like Spider-Man. And so that makes it an interesting story enough that we don't need one of them to die. Um, One other thing about, I wanted to mention Daniel Pemberton, who did the score for this movie. Sometimes in the percussion parts, he would use comic books, like rolled up comic books as percussion instruments, which is (laughs) awesome. And sure. so unnecessary. As but... one does. <laughs> so good. This movie, it's just like, it's the prettiest movie, the most comic book movie ever made. It's just the most insane to make from from our limited outside perspective looking into the inside. It just had to have taken so much endurance. They talked about how there are these gigantic computers that they have that hold all of the... Yeah, like the servers. All the servers that hold all of the, call them the data that yeah. required, you know. Because they have to constantly be rendering the film. Yes. And they have to have servers to back it all up and to and process talking, all of it. Right. And they're talking about how they're like running out of space on the most enormous servers ever. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think they even shut down at one point, which Phil Lord and Chris Miller said was their goal was to break the servers. And they did. So... <laughs> I think it was, at, during the credits, one of the people in the commentary, sometimes it's hard to tell who's talking when, and I'm pretty sure it was Phil Lord, um, but he said, everyone went through the crucible with this movie. Every name, it, meaning every name in the credits, we've seen cry. They've yelled at us. <laughs> so they pushed them hard. They did, but they also gave their animators a lot of freedom. There were some mm. fun quotes from animators who worked on the movies that were like, I've been working in the business 20 years and I have never had this much leeway or freedom on just like, yeah, go for it. Try yeah. a different style. Do it your way and we'll see how it works. I and, love that. And so there was a lot of pulling together everybody's best talents and best ideas to make this movie what it was. One example was the bagel thing. One of the animators, he thought it would be funny if when Spider-Man... Peter B. Parker throws the bagel back at the one of the lab scientists and it hits them in the head that the onomatopoeia would say bagel really fast in like one frame or two frames yes. over their head. <laughs> and Phil Lord and Chris Miller loved it so much that they decided to, to keep it. I love that. Bagel. <laughs> That's exactly what a bagel says when it hits somebody. <laughs> this might be, just as an aside, this is easily a top five movie for me. I could watch this every week and never get tired of it. This might be my favorite movie, actually. Really? I, I was thinking about it as we were doing all this research. Maybe. I don't, I don't know. But it's definitely a top five. I can never pick a favorite. But this one's definitely up there. It's definitely one of the prettiest movies I've ever seen. Yeah, I adore it. And I adore it more the more I learn about um, how it was made. Which I do forever. That's why I love making of 
behind the scenes stuff is because it always makes me appreciate the movie more and how miraculous movies are with all these huge teams that they even ever get made is insane to me. Even movies that I'm like, oh, it's okay. If I watch behind the scenes stuff, I maybe I don't like it more, but I appreciate it more and I don't begrudge its, ex- its existence. And oh, I feel the same way. Yes. You're like, well, even if it didn't turn out 100% the best, it's just incredible the amount of work and thought that gets yeah. put into all of these films, but this one in particular. Let's talk about the representation and the importance of Miles Morales, Casey. Yeah, because like like I said, I love and adore this movie, um, but the reasons that I love and adore it might be different from how other people feel about it. And this is a really good example of why uh, representation is important. With Miles being a, a biracial, um, multicultural kid, uh, his his mom is Latinx and his dad is black. We thought it'd be good to talk about why Miles is an important character. Definitely. Miles is, because he's the main character, he's the most important. But I do love that there are some other great representation in the movie, too. Yeah. Uh, maybe let's talk about those first, because they'll be a little faster. Okay, sure. And then we can I wasn't thinking about that, Miles. because... Black History Month, my focus was on Miles, but mm. um, but yeah, go for it. No, I just want, I mean, it's pretty brief, but I wanted to mention that all the different spider people, so the idea that anybody or anyone can be a, a Spider-Man, just fantastic. And I love that Doc Ock is a woman. That's so a fun. great change. Also, we didn't mention as far as animation goes that in her office, everything is octagonal yeah you say it octagonal (laughs) (laughs) even like her glasses and yeah everything in her office the lights in the ceiling so that's a a fun little detail um i also love aunt may's character in this movie she gets way more of a a cool supporting role versus just like woe is me i'm aunt may i need peter parker to take care of me yeah she comes right and she's like knows what a goober is and she knows how to run the secret shop and she's clearly been a partner with peter this whole mm-hmm. time and has clearly been supporting him versus just being a background character yeah which <laughs> the creators of this they had lily tomlin in mind when they were coming up with the design of the character they didn't really know that they would actually get Lily Tomlin to voice the character, which is fun. Uh, they they were thinking of like she's a bit a bit hippie-ish, but tough, um, a little bit no nonsense, and yeah, they got they got Lily Tomlin, which is fantastic. And as we mentioned, we've got uh, Miles's mom, who is Puerto Rican. So that little segue. Yeah. Let's jump in. Okay. I just mostly wanted to find quotes from people who to whom Miles meant a lot, and just share that rather than share my own I had the same thought I think that's why I did my most my biggest amount of research was these articles on representation because he's going to mean even more to a person of color than to me a a white person I love what maybe just to kind of kick it off a little bit uh Peter Ramsey who again is one of the co-directors in the art of spider-verse book he says Until recently, the scarcity of heroes and lead characters that are not white has always been a bit of a subtle mental stumbling block for people of color. You feel left out of fantasy narratives. So uh, that kind of serves as a a background to how a lot of people felt before Miles Morales. And I'm sure still feel in a lot of ways because there's still a a long ways to go. Uh, There's this great idea that we are finally, in Miles Morales, we are finally seeing a Spider-Man who isn't an orphan and he doesn't have a tragic family story. He has a very supportive biracial family. And he's not, in the movie, he's not portrayed as the black Spider-Man. 
that makes mm-hmm. sense like it's just his this is his daily life yeah. this is the way he lives uh, they make it feel so natural from the point where you especially that opening scene where you see him with his you know speaking some spanish with his mom as he's walking out the door and his dad's you know gonna drive him to school and um I guess he's like walking through the neighborhood and he feels so comfortable with everybody in his neighborhood and you see him get a little more and more like reserved as he comes into this uh, private school life where he feels like he doesn't belong as much. Um, But there's this, but at the same time, like his race is clear in his music choices, the posters on his wall, um, because he has, who does he have, Chance the Rapper? He has somebody on his wall. His shoes, the Air Jordans. The way he interacts with his neighbors versus how he interacts with his classmates and where he feels most comfortable. So while they don't put a big red flag on like, look, he's a black Spider-Man. It's very clear in all the little ways um, that this is his life experience as a black young adult in the suburbs of New York. Yeah, um, Richard Newby, a Hollywood reporter, he says, Miles goes against so many established superhero tropes. He's not an orphan and instead comes from an unbroken household with two loving and supportive parents. He's smart and a little nerdy, but not an outsider. And he's protective of his racial identity, refusing to be limited by it. And and he says in the comics, Miles says he doesn't want the qualification. I don't want to be the black Spider-Man. I want to be Spider-Man. In an era where we so often search for easy, limiting labels, it's hugely important that Miles Morales isn't a novelty character like a number of race-bent comic characters have been over the years but a character who is biracial and Spider-Man, not Spider-Man because he is biracial. Exactly. I have another article from The Hollywood Reporter. Let me... Also Richard Newby. That's what I was going to open it real quick and let me see. It's a different article or not. I feel like it was... Yes. So it's that same article by Richard Newby. And I loved this quote that goes along with that. So Miles Morales' journey to becoming Spider-Man isn't a straight line. It's the strands of being black, Latino, a son, a nephew, an honors student, a graffiti artist, a hip-hop fan, all woven together to create the web that is the wide demographic of Spider-Man, a union of many of the best parts of humanity. Humanity. There's a shot in the movie of Miles Morales staring up at the glass display case containing Spider-Man's uniform. It's a brief moment without dialogue, but it resonates as one of the film's most powerful moments because it represents Miles so well, the tremendous legacy of carrying more than one identity. For all the kids of color who dream of being superheroes and all the adults of color still grappling with power and responsibility, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse leaves us with a clear message. We could always be Spider-Man with the mask on, but now, and perhaps more important, we can be Spider-Man with the mask off as well. I love the part of that quote where it talks about, how does he phrase it, all the strands that make up the web of his demographic, like all these little pieces of himself that make him a a rich and real-feeling character. I think it's important um, because so many other writers about this movie talk about how important it is that Miles, when he's Spider-Man, has a hood on. And it's not something I really considered, you know, from being a white a white person. It's not it, To me, it was just like, oh, he, he's wearing a hoodie and that's cool. Um, but the fact that he's wearing a hood is really important. And I'll, I'll read um, a couple quotes here about why. Um, the first one here is from Jada Gomez at Bustle. She says, for some children, their, their first image of Spider-Man will be of a black and Puerto Rican teen who saves the world and even alternate universes in a hoodie and limited, limited edition kicks. That's some badass, powerful imagery. And though some of Miles Morales' Morales' littlest fans may not be aware, 
of some of our country's recent police brutality cases, I couldn't help but feel immense pride with the styling choice I hope was intentional. In one scene, we see Miles gain confidence and step on the ledge of a Brooklyn building to let go and learn the webs, then watch as he sails from skyscraper to skyscraper wearing his Jordan 1s and a red hoodie. In real life, this is, the same, this is the same style of dress that causes women to clutch their purses when a black man passes them on the street and prompts people to avoid sitting next to young men of color on the subway. It's similar to the attire a 17-year-old Trayvon Martin wore the night of his death when he was gunned down with only a bag of Skittles in his hand. Purse clutching and other microaggressions have loomed large for too many centuries to be, re to be reversed with one animated superhero film. But what it will help change is the way young black and brown children see themselves and measure their own value. And then uh, Richard Newby also mentions this wearing of a hood. He says, it's not just fashionable, it's a statement. It's an affirmation that wearing a hoodie doesn't make black and brown kids the menaces or thugs that the news media so often portrays them as, but individuals just as capable of heroism and growth as anyone. I just think that's very, very powerful. Miles is a hero and he's wearing a hood. Exactly. The clothes don't make the person. But speaking of his clothes, did you know that after his shoes that Nike re-released them after the movie. Oh, really? As like a limited run, and they are called Origin Story. Oh, I love that. I love it, too. It's like, I want some. Yeah. <laughs> They're probably so expensive. I th yeah, I'm sure they are. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I love that because of the movie, they were re-released. Yeah, that's fantastic. IndieWire has a great article with quotes from some of the voice actors on how they viewed their roles in this movie in relation to representation. Um, so this one from um, Moore, who voices Miles, says, It surprised me that he looked exactly like me. That opened up my eyes. It says that Moore didn't fully recognize the cultural ramifications of the movie until it was done. And then it says, quote from Moore, um, it says, The representation is really kicking in when it's brought up to me when people say I'm the black Spider-Man. But then the article continues and says that Moore is wary of career opportunities that appear to treat him as a representative more than an actor. So he asks himself, you know, is it iconic? Will it make a huge difference? Is it meant for me or could any black boy do it? I have a lot of black actor friends out there. There are so many other projects like that where they didn't really need me. So I like that he felt like this was a role that he could do um, instead of just a role where he's playing like a token black guy. One, it, it was destiny that he played this. Uh, there's a story that you know years ago, Shamik Moore had... Um, this journal, and he wrote in that journal, I am Spider-Man. Yeah, as yeah. a kid. Yeah, <laughs> Just so great. I read that too. It's fantastic. And the same article, I thought it was really interesting that uh, Kamiko Glenn, who plays Penny Parker, um, she says that she's, she's Asian-American. So she says, quote, being biracial in this industry is kind of an interesting thing. I've always been hyper aware of that because I've been told so many times that so many times you're not Asian or white enough. I'm always conscious of stereotypes, she said. I grew up very American, so I always felt weird putting on an Asian accent, auditioning for roles that felt very stereotypical, like the martial arts experience. Now that they're being more inclusive, I feel a bit better about those roles existing in the world. So the idea for her is that she didn't want to have to play one side of herself or the other. So as roles are becoming more inclusive, then she feels more at ease playing roles like Penny Parker. She goes on to say, The best possible situation would be if we don't have to call it out as much. If we're able to watch something and everything's inclusive, then it's not about diversity. It's just a part of our lives. 
And I feel like that's what they do so well in the movie with Miles' character, is he's not there to be Black Spider-Man. He's there to just be part of his life. To be Spider-Man and also happens to be biracial. Yeah. yeah. I love this movie. This movie is just amazing. Top notch. Wonderful. Streets ahead. <laughs> Streets ahead. Speaking <laughs> of community. Should we close out the episode? Absolutely. So because it is Black History Month, we wanted to give a recommendation to donate to the Loveland Foundation. They provide uh, counseling and therapy for black women and girls. And in fact, if you are already thinking about joining our Patreon or buying merch, then the proceeds for that will go to the Loveland Foundation. Even better, just donate directly to them as well, because that would be fantastic. But if you're on the fence, either way of joining our Patreon, just know that for this month, it'll go to a to a good cause. Or our new merch, because then you get a shirt and you donate it to a good cause. True. Or maybe you want a sticker. Or a sticker or a mug. Speaking of Patreon, we have a new patron, Shay. Welcome, Shay. We got to meet Shay at our patron hangout because we do that every month and just hang out and have fun. And she was wearing a Ben, ben Solo sweater, and I am very jealous of it. <laughs> Our Zoom hangout. We wish we could meet you all in person. Yes. But it is over Zoom. A Zoom patron hangout that we do every month. And they're so fun. It is the best part about all of this. The whole podcast, everything, the Zoom hangouts are the best part. So And we usually do our monthly giveaways for our patrons in the Zoom hangout. True. We gave away a book to Taylor and she's very excited to receive it. So if you're interested in becoming a patron of Elsewhere, head to patreon.com slash hello from elsewhere. There's some amazing awesome tiers there as well plus you also get access to our discord which is the good place it's true though <laughs> you can follow us on instagram and twitter at elsewhere underscore pod our cover art is by vaishan brandon you can find his graphics on instagram at graphite.vmb hello from elsewhere is a proud member of wbne visit wbne.org for more fabulous podcasts like the newest show on the network curly critics where Carrie and Jade talk pop culture every other Monday. We are so excited for yet again a new sibling to join the network. We're stoked. Very exciting. So here's a promo. Hi, I'm Carrie. And I'm Jade. And we're the Curly Critics. We talk books, movies, and TV shows, and whatever else we want to talk about. Don't forget musicals. We're just two childhood best friends who got bored during the pandemic and decided to create a podcast. Join us as we talk Star Wars, our high school English teacher, our collective childhoods, and of course, pineapples. You know that's right. Listen every other Monday wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to have a magical day. Well, Casey, Spider-Man stopped the super collider so do we need to get out of here i mean we could just hang out but i don't know we should probably head home do we live do we live in new york no man how are we getting home <laughs> through the through we're gonna open the portal we're gonna okay we're gonna we'll open use the portal. the portal before he closes it yeah we're jumping through the portal okay yep there we go that'll get us home how do they guarantee each person gets home into the right universe i don't know it's intuitive about that the multiverse is intuitive well and they like are pulling this the genetics of the mom and the son so maybe your own genetics just decide where you go that makes sense like they know where you're fi where you fit yeah i'm gonna go with that that's my uh, that's my head cannon. i think the multiverse has a brain that's, that's my <laughs> head cannon. on that note happy beeps happy beeps And we're live with the WBNE.